Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hi Simon. Today's episode is going to be a Vaughn special uh, because we're going to be discussing Star Wars. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, Vaughn, before we get started, I have to ask, how excited are you to talk about Star Wars on today's show? I have never been so excited in my life, Simon. This is this is what I was born for. I'm, I love this moment <laughs> so much. <laughs> Wonderful. Right. Okay. Well, let's not hang around then. Uh, <laughs> to start things off, uh, Vaughn, can you introduce the history of the Star Wars franchise and then also the sort of in-universe timeline and uh, political history that takes place within Star Wars? So over to you, Vaughn. Yes, I can, Simon. Okay. Um, okay. There's so much to talk about. So let's start with um, where it started. Star Wars 1977. Um the first film came out in May of 1977. All of the first six films actually came out in May because George Lucas's daughter's birthday is in May and he mm. wanted them out for her birthday, which is adorable. And Disney destroyed that. So we'll talk about that later. But um, it wasn't supposed to be a success. It, it was this kind of very weird, experimental, very camp film. Um, didn't have a very large budget. The budget for it, the production cost actually was $11 million, which is nothing really in Hollywood, especially in kind of the seventies. So how much do you guys think Star Wars originally made in 1977 at the box office? No one expected it to be a hit. Worldwide sales, what do you think it was? Um, Sorry, Toby, what was that? A hundred million maybe? I'm going to go higher. I think it was in the hundreds of millions, but I couldn't say like 400, 500, 600, something like that. So we have 100 to 600? Is, some, somewhere between there, yeah. $775.8 million at the oh, box wow. office worldwide. I wow. thought you said it wasn't big. It wasn't expected. Like it wasn't supposed to be. Oh, 700 it, in you know, the late 70s? That's fantastic. It's, yeah. Yeah. On an $11 million budget. Absolutely shattered. Oh, wow. Completely just threw cinema into this brand new scape of like, wow, we can do anything now. If Star Wars can make $775 million out of this like completely camp and like thrown together ragtag group of people just like hurling around a desert in hot pants which the production <laughs> pictures for star wars are incredible if you've never seen them um but yeah so that's what we're talking about here is like cinema that absolutely just changed history the moment it it hit the box office worldwide um a few figures for after that empire which was released in 1980 uh empire strikes back episode five um, they had an $18 million production cost and netted $538 million in the box office. Um, Return of the Jedi, episode six, had a $32 million production and netted $475 million. So it, it definitely dropped afterwards. But this came hurtling back in 99 when Phantom, um, Phantom of the Menace, or, oh God, Phantom, Phantom Menace. Menace. Phantom I'm of so the excited. Opera. phantom menace was released in 99 and george lucas was he stated in i think 1989 
that the prequels would be, quote, unbelievably expensive. Mm-hmm. And by that, he means Phantom Menace used all brand new CGI technology. Through, through the 80s, um, Lucas had been saying like, oh, I'm not going to do the prequels because I'm, I'm tired of the storyline kind of thing. Uh, he had planned for Star Wars after the original trilogy to be a nine episode series. He wanted three trilogies, um, being the prequels, being the sequels, and then the originals in the middle. By 81, he kind of gave up on this and he was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. Like, um, Empire hadn't had the same return as Star Wars, the original A New Hope did in 77. So he was like kind of wavering on the idea. But then throughout the 80s, the technological advances in the film industry, most notably CGI, um, it kind of reinvigorated him. And he was like, okay, I, maybe, I, maybe I should do the prequels. I'm going to do this. So in 1997, he re-released A New Hope, w- updated with the, the CGI technology for the 20th anniversary of the film. Um, and that re-energized the base in a way that nobody expected. Um, I'm sure, even if you don't know what Star Wars is, you've probably heard the question, who shot first? Or people just yelling like Greedo shot first or Han shot first. That comes from 1997 when George Lucas made the decision to update A New Hope with the CGI technology as a kind of teaser for what would come two years later with Phantom Menace in 99 and then the subsequent prequels in 2002 and 2005. So Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, episodes one and two, both had a production budget of $115 million. Phantom Menace grossed over a billion dollars in 1999. Like almost, it it grossed $1.027 billion. They made a profit of almost a billion dollars on one film. That's bananas, right? Yep. It's crazy. Yeah, now I, I definitely understand why everything is a blockbuster now. I mean, yeah. can you imagine, like, what, 11 million, and then they made 700 million. Um, producers and studio execs must have been like, no, no more medium-sized movies. This, this is over. we, we, yeah. we got to get rich. I mean, of, of course, a decent chunk of that will be going to the cinemas themselves, so it wouldn't be all profit. And, of course, one of the things that they talk about in Hollywood is Hollywood accounting, so that um, they can basically fictitiously put numbers in there to make a film not actually make a profit, even though it's made hundreds of millions of dollars of profit. And that way they can um, stop people from getting shares on the back end and that kind of thing. But you are right, Bond, that the sheer scale of the amount of money that Star Wars has brought in. And of course, as you know, you'll know far better than I will. It's not just the amount of money that was made from actually, you know, people going to the cinema, the the amount of merchandise that has been moved because of Star Wars. And of course, George Lucas famously got part of that deal. If not, I I don't know what percentage it was, but he was smart enough to see this early on that he was going to keep the merchandise or a large chunk of it as part of the deal that he made. And so George made huge sums of money uh, based off that. But sorry, Von, on you well, no, that's that's exactly the thing. It's not just the box office numbers. Even I'm being a bit 
kind of sketch as a film historian because we don't really use box office numbers as a kind of marker of success mm -hmm. um, because there are so many kind of caveats to it, especially with it being worldwide and the just changing demographics, you have different markets, whatever. So it's kind of a sketchy marker, but for the actual sheer success of Star Wars, it's kind of acceptable to do this because 11 million production to a $775 million box office gross like that's yep you're not lying to say it's a success wait was uh, it did it become the leading uh box office movie of all time when it came out i think that's hard to know because of the adjust inflation so i think like today even now if you were to change the or adjust the inflation i think you would have is it gone with the wind that's still like the most successful f film ever but for adjusted i think so even but, even internationally, I, I think so. But wow. it, it's 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 always hard to know with these adjustments exactly how they are. I mean, the fact mm -hmm. that Star Wars was able to make so many, you know, there, there wasn't a Gone with the Wind six, at least not, not that I'm aware of. Whereas, Star, <laughs> you know, they, they didn't really add in Jar Jar at any point into Gone with the Wind. Whereas, um, <laughs> Star well, Wars that's a different conversation. I mean, the Gone with the Wind was a little bit like Star Wars. It was about knights and ladies, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, that's, that's a good. I don't think I've ever heard that comparison. That's a good point, Dopey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> frankly, my dear, I don't give a sis. Yes, very good. Uh, right, sorry, Vaughn. You were, you were, you were, you were going, and we distracted you. Mm. Well, no, yeah, that's that's the thing though about the merchandise is that that very early on in the seventies. Um, George Lucas made this deal that he would get profits from the toys and it was the first time like an intellectual property really which is a modern term I don't think they were really using intellectual mm -hmm. property as a term back then but um, that, that that involved more than just the film rights that the actual merchandise to it was um, being marketed in such such an aggressive kind of way mm -hmm. and that it turned a profit and then larger companies were like oh shit we should probably be like owning everything under the star wars name or whatever the name is that they have i mean disney had been doing it for years with um their parks but yeah. the the actual merchandise wasn't really a thing for films or film properties really until star wars until george lucas kind of realized oh we can sell this to kids and a lot of people hate the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi because they were in there to sell toys um very much like the the Porgs in the sequels <laughs> and BB-8 like even Yoda to an extent baby Yoda um a lot of people are very kind of against all of the cute things in Star Wars because it's just there to sell the toys to the kids but like, no, fuck you, you know, like <laughs> just let us have Star Wars, it's great. Um, anyway, so yeah, Star Wars is this like massive cultural kind of just dominating force in the, the last 23 years of the, the 20th century and absolutely dominant in the 21st. Um, in part because of what came after with the so you had the sequel as, as uh, the prequel sorry as you mentioned but then it kind of started to die away a little bit as far as the creation of the, the new well, large scale films until a certain um, mm, transaction happened 
so so yeah so in um in the early 2000s we have phantom menace in 99 um attack of the clones in 2002 and then between 2002 and the release of um revenge of the sith the third Mm -hmm. film episode three in 2005 you had the clone wars animated series between 2003 and 2005 and this also coincided with the dark horse comics Mm -hmm. Um, that were filling in the gaps of what the Clone Wars actually were, because we didn't really have any basis for that in the kind of mainstream Star Wars um, canon. Now, extended universe is such a huge thing to talk about with Star Wars, and I'm going to keep it very brief and simple because Disney did away with a lot of the canon in 2012 when they purchased it, when they purchased Lucasfilm. Um, but Star Wars is very unique from a lot of other media and cultural kind of um, exports from the U.S., well, from a lot of places, because it started with the film, and then the novels were written, and then the comics were written, and then there were video games, and there were computer games, and animated series, and TV shows. It, it started with the film text, so that branched into this just brilliant extended universe of all sorts of fan art that was kind of collated into um, a canonization process. And there, like there's, there's Star Wars canon, and then there's also legends. And it's just this massive world that you can just absolutely get lost in um, with all of the kind of main characters that you know, but then also these brand new ones, brand new characters, brand new storylines, brand new planets that all just work symbiotically in it's this incredible universe of just artists coming together. It's amazing. It's a cultural thing and it's great. And I uh, love uh, it. Sorry, not, not to interrupt you in full flow, but I, I think from someone who's not as deep in the, I mean, I've seen the the nine films and uh, or 11 films, I suppose, with the uh, additional ones on the side. And I've seen um, Mandalorian, and you know I, I I enjoy parts of Star Wars more than others, and I'm kind of sort of semi in that culture to some extent. But for me, the great greatest achievement of uh, George Lucas was the world building, and yes, I, I think that's his greatest achievement over any other aspect of Star Wars was his ability to put forward in the first film and then surrounding it in the two films that followed this sense of there being a a larger scale world that was out there and one of the things that was i don't know if revolutionary is the right word but one thing that kind of stood out when the original trilogy came out was that it, it felt like they lived in universe where things were a bit dirty and were a bit clunky and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It didn't have the shine that the prequels had, which actually was one of the uh, remarks that critics had against it. Was that it felt a little too kind of um, graphicy compared to the kind of real world um, lack of splendor that the original trilogy had. And I, I think that's one of the. Uh, for me, that's Lucas's great greatest achievement was he was able to create a, a universe almost like a, a, a sandbox that others were then able to play in and, and take that forward with. So as someone on more of the outside of it than Vaughn, to me, that, that that's his greatest uh, contribution, I think, to not just to the Star Wars universe itself, but to the larger film universe and film um, film going and media creation, I guess, that kind of followed after him. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I'm like obsessed with cinematic universes 
because of Star Wars, that it's just this this massive thing that I'm calling it cinematic universes because they're now branching into a full cinematic universe of Star Wars. But the universe itself of just this entire other world, like yeah. it's incredible. And that's probably something we'll, we'll touch on later when we maybe go back and forth on, on some of the actual decisions within some of the, the filmmaking or the choices. But as far as, so I think we've probably, I think you, Vaughn, you've done a great um introduction to what star wars is and then as you say we had disney purchasing lucasfilm which was a a turning point i I think as far as the media because as you say you you had the removal of a large part of the canon and then a focus on Mm -hmm. trying to get back to the original trilogy as it were and we we saw that with um episode seven which was much more similar in vain to episode four and um, that, that kind of thing than, than the prequels were. Would that would that be a fair summation? I think that would be fair, but I would disagree that that's necessarily the best thing. Yes, well, that's a separate conversation. We'll but get the, into this. We'll get into this later. I as, as far as what Disney wanted to do, it seems that they were trying to aim to get back to um, what Episode Four had, obviously, and um, right. the focus yeah. on the characters and the the specific um <laughs> specific stories that are involved with there anyway yeah you, is you have anything- this issue of like coming back 40 years later from an original property mm-hmm. and being like how do we capture fans that were here for two other iterations of this story and also bring in new fans that can watch this without having to watch the other six and that's that's definitely a difficult thing to do um and i yeah. do think they did it well I, I don't hate any Star Wars film. I'm going to say that now. What about, what about the Christmas special? Um, <laughs> trick question. The Christmas special doesn't exist. It's a holiday special. It's Life Day, Simon. Okay. Life Day. Okay. And it's great. <laughs> and it's great. In parts. Some of it's super racist. But so is a lot of, a lot of Star Wars. I was going to say so is America. <laughs> there are a lot of problems. So is America. Um, okay. So very, very quickly. Yeah. Disney buys... Star Wars from Lucasfilm in October 2012. Yeah, October 2012. Kathleen Kennedy steps up um, as president of Lucasfilm. They acquired it for $4 billion and announced that um, Force Awakens would come out, the new trilogy, the sequels would come out 2015. Force Awakens, they spent $245 million on and absolutely destroyed records with two billion dollars in the box office yep um force awakens last jedi rise of skywalker and rogue one all made over one billion dollars in box office um solo is the outlier there it it cost 275 million and only made 392 million so there was still somewhat of a profit but mm-hmm. um that's the only disney film from star wars so far that has not broken a billion dollars in the box office, which is bananas. Um, also, Kathleen Kennedy has been with Lucasfilm for a very long time. And if you don't like Kathleen Kennedy and you say that she's the reason Star Wars sucks, then get wrecked because she's great. Um, <laughs> and also Dave, Dave Filoni is a saint. Dave Filoni is the showrunner for most of the um, most of the Star Wars series at the moment. He did Clone Wars. Um, he also did Rebels. 
which ran from for, uh, 2014 to 2018. That's a Disney property as well. Um, this, the last two seasons of Clone Wars, the um, not Clone Wars, the animated series, because that was the original one from 2003 to 05, but Clone Wars, the other animated series um, that ran from 2008 to 2012 and then was sold over in the, the um, Disney buyout. And there were two subsequent releases in 2014 and 2020. Um, they're incredible. That's a great show. I would highly recommend. So yeah, so that kind of brings us up to date. And then last year, the last two years, we had a, a series of Mando, uh, The Mandalorian from 2019 and 2020. Uh, the Skywalker saga is at the moment finished as of Rise of Skywalker in 2019. And now we have all sorts of new properties coming out in the next few years that Disney announced last December. So I'm going to try to very quickly go through the Star Wars timeline um, within the storyline of what's kind of going on here. So, okay, so how this works is that in A New Hope, in the original Star Wars, at the end of it, there's the Battle of Yavin. Um, that is the first, the, when they blew up the first Death Star. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the like year zero for talking about Star Wars um, timelines. So you have like 5,000 years before the Battle of Yavin where the kind of Star Wars universe starts and you get the foundations of the Jedi and all that. We're not going to talk about that because that's too much. We're going to focus. <laughs> We're going to focus. That can on... be your, your sister podcast on where you go through 5,000 years of history. Oh week. my God, I could, I could do it just happily <laughs> every week. Just like, and now we're going to talk about 5,002 BBY. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. And there's, there's a lot of new stuff coming out about the High Republic, um, which is like a few hundred years before Battle of Yavin, before mm-hmm. the, the events of the prequels. Um, the Acolyte is a new property that's coming out uh, right at the end of the High Republic and towards the start of the Fall of the Jedi. Yeah, that I'm very excited for. Um, but anyway, so we're gonna we're gonna start with with um, Phantom Menace. So that's when that's Episode One, when Qui Gon Jinn finds Anakin Skywalker and brings him to be um, trained as a Jedi. And then Qui-Gon dies and Obi-Wan becomes his, um, his master and takes Anakin on as his Padawan. That's in 32 BBY. So that's 32 years before the original film with Luke Skywalker. Yep. Um, Attack of the Clones is 10 years later. Anakin falls in love with Padme, um, Padme Amidala. And he starts to have this kind of internal turmoil of questioning whether the Jedi are good. Um, This also starts the Clone Wars where the Jedi find themselves being the peacekeepers, quote unquote peacekeepers, but also military generals fighting a war for the Republic that is being run by Chancellor Palpatine. This 
this film really starts to this film and Clone Wars, the series, really start to show the decline from democracy into kind of tyranny um, and how aggressive fear mongering and escalation of war and Senate disputes um, can kind of devolve the trust in a government, the trust in their military and the military's trust in them, um, as well as kind of citizens worldwide and universe wide really questioning whether their government cares about them. So that kind of comes to a culmination in Revenge of the Sith when Anakin fully turns to the dark side and questions whether the Jedi are good or bad. Um, that, that film really pivots on who gets to say what's good and bad who gets to say what's good and evil? Is it really just a matter of kind of perspective? He fully kind of believes or convinces himself that tyranny and dictatorship and to an extent fascism are the right way to govern. Um, he says as much in Attack of the Clones to Padme when they're discussing kind of philosophies of, of governance. So after Revenge of the Sith, um, we'll get Bad Batch, which comes out this week, and I'm very excited for it, May 4th. Um, that's the start of the Empire and the foundations of it and kind of the, the fallout from Order 66, which is when the clones turned on the Jedi and wiped out the Jedi Order, for the most part. Um, that trailer actually opens with Palpatine's First Galactic Empire speech from the end of Revenge of the Sith. So we get to pick up right there and see how an empire builds itself. Mm -hmm. um, so that's gonna be such an amazing show. I'm so excited for it. Um, about 10 years later in 11 BBY, we're getting Kenobi, the Kenobi series that's coming out right. um, where we get Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor together again. And I'm so excited. And there was actually news this week that Matt, Matt Lanter uh, will be returning to voice the animated Anakin Skywalker in a new project. Oh. And that's exciting. That's really exciting. But anyway, so 10 BBY, we get Solo. Um, 5 BBY, we get Rebels and Cassian Andor, which leads into Year Zero with Rogue One, um, when the Rebels under uh, Leia Organa get... Um, the plans for the Death Star. And that leads into A New Hope when they blow up the Death Star. That's the Battle of Yavin. Yep. So after that, three years later, Empire Strikes Back. Um, and four years later, Return of the Jedi, you get a much more kind of personal story that's less about the politics, less about um, the outer worlds and other people's perspectives on the 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 wars that are going on and the empire and all of these things, the original trilogy really kind of hones in on the relationships between um, Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Leia, Darth Vader, the emperor, and their relationships with each other and with the force. Um, so post that we're getting into prequels territory. Um, and I said I wouldn't bring in the video games, but I'm gonna bring in one. So Battlefront 2, there's Operation Cinder, which is where the, um, the Emperor 
posthumously um, orders the Imperial Navy to burn just everything, just burn, just burn shit, which cul culminates in the Battle of Jakku, uh, where the Empire ultimately kind of falls in 4 BBY. So jumping forward a bit, um, the kind of remnants of the Empire, the survivors from Operation Cinder and Battle of Jakku, they start to form the, the foundations of the First Order. Um, through Mando, which is seven years after Battle of Yavin, you get um, you get to see kind of the the random kind of spots of where the Empire still is functioning and how they're covertly and in the shadows kind of building themselves back up. And the, the New Republic is kind of rising as the First Order strengthens in the shadows. And there's a lot of material coming out um, to fill in the gaps between Mando, which is, again, seven years after the Battle of Yavin, through to Force Awakens, which is 34 years after the Battle of Yavin. Um, you get Force Awakens in 34, which happens the same year as The Last Jedi, and then Rise of Skywalker is in 35. So they all happen very quickly and sequentially um, with rebel cells of the New Republic still fighting against the, the First Order and ultimately triumphing against them um, and kind of wiping out the First Order. I think that brings us up to date to be able to talk about philosophies of, of Star Wars and the politics therein, um, and also how it reflects and kind of informs on American history. So where do we want to jump in? Um, well, that's probably as much a question for you, Vaughn, as it is probably for well, us. Well, I'm glad you asked, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, do you, do you want me to run through some philosophies of Star Wars? And then I swear I'll let you guys talk. I mean, talking is optional for us today. So uh, <laughs> please just, yeah. Do you want to lead with the philosophies? And then we can discuss that a bit. And then we can maybe go into more of the, some of the political side of things and um, what, what we're going to be discussing as far as the American history and um, Newt Gingrich in space and that kind of stuff. Mm, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, mm, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, I, no, I thought of something. Okay, so philosophy of Star Wars. Let's jump into that. Um, so there, there are lots, lots of philosophical lessons in Star Wars, not only because it's a nine film, well, technically 11 film, Yep. property um and tons of extended kind of lore and shows and whatever um there's just so much going on in star wars and you get like we could talk about questions of like feminism in star wars um moralistic treatment of animals comes up a lot in star wars mm -hmm. um the meaning of like cognizant life between battle droids and clone troopers. Um, we could talk about the banality of the bystander and allowing an empire to rise. Yep. Uh, there are philosophies of rebellion and anarchy and how far um, the left should go in so various situations. Just mm -hmm. on this then, there are, there are three trilogies and they tell three, um, of three different stories are the right way to phrase it but th mm. there's th sort of three different time periods as it were 
is there a is there a cohesive philosophy or philosophical questions that are raised in each of the trilogies and are they different to each other so is it should we be looking at this as yeah. a larger what, what sort of philosophy over the nine slash 11 films or should we be looking at as the philosophy of the original and then the prequels and then the sequels mm. I'll, I'll leave that to you but um that's just a thought on how to structure this well no that's such a that's such a good question i've been thinking about it all week of how how to kind of structure this um I've chosen one core philosophy, but we absolutely could break it down and do each one individually. Um, there's some things around specifically American history that we'll talk about with the prequels. But mm -hmm. one of the core philosophies to just pick one is, mm, there are two a little bit. Okay, one's like the philosophy of the chosen one mentality. Um, I'm gonna put that one to the side for the moment. But the other core philosophy through all of the politics um, is the kind of heart of Star Wars is the struggle between the light and the dark side of the force, um, presuming that there are only two sides. So there's the Jedi and the Sith. And if we want to get into deeper lore, we could talk about the, the gray Jedi um, and the father, the, the brother and the sister um, with other force wielders there's a lot, uh, but sticking to something that most people would be familiar with, there's the Jedi and there's the Sith. So these are two opposing views of how to use the force. It's the good and the evil. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm of the opinion that the originals pushed the philosophy that there's always good, no matter how far someone strays into evil and darkness. Um, I think that really fits with a Cold War mentality mm -hmm. that of there like being some sort of hope for the, the evil empire, um, which would be hope really for America to come back to the light. Um, a lot of people were very uncomfortable with how the US was structuring it or uh, positioning itself in the world, um, especially after World War II, um, dropping the bombs and seeing the kind of extent of what the US could do and then threatening to use the bombs throughout the Cold War at various points. Yeah. Um, and and of course, you know, we might or might not touch on during this. Vietnam was, of course, so fresh in everyone's mind. Yes, around around the time that um, the original trilogy was coming out. But sorry, Bon on you. Well, no, yeah. So the originals were specifically modeled after Vietnam. Um, mm -hmm. We'll definitely talk about that a lot more in a little bit. Um, but yeah, so so the originals pushed this idea that like good, no matter what that you can always come back to the light. But the prequels, I think, really problematize that in a way I find really captivating. Um, they ask this question of what good and evil really mean, and they challenge you to sympathize with a child who is prophesied. Um, you, you like watch him grow up and struggle with real, real trauma. And you watch his pain and his distress while making decisions out of that trauma. Um, you watch him learn to love under a system that forbids any sort of emotional attachments. And you watch extremism be born by a very liberal desire to not rock the boat and remain loyal to a philosophy of government rather than the government unfolding before them. And that I think really is what's so captivating about the prequels 
is that the Jedi refuse to really acknowledge what's going on around them and look at the politics of what's happening. And they're like, well, we know the values of our government, so they won't go wrong. And it's like, hmm, that's how tyranny happens, is you stop looking and you just trust the doctrine, isn't it, America? Um, one, one, mm. one thing about this with the prequels is that there is, like you say, you know, that it, it presents um, the good side and the bad side, the dark side of the force, but the dark side of the force is personified in one individual, which is Palpatine. And mm. Palpatine is someone who becomes a, you know, a leader of this system, the system that used to be democratic with a system of senators and then rulers in their own worlds, rulers in their own countries. And he subverts the political system in order to become a sort of a, an emperor. But, the, but Star Wars seems to suggest in the structure of that government that, that, that you know, a balance of power is needed. You know, you need, you need your senators. You mm-hmm. need your Jedi who are, who are not democratically, you know, put together they're they're a elite meritocratic group of warriors but they are another sort of um uh, check on the powers of the of the government check on the powers of the of the, of the chancellor and i do think that and, and i and this probably goes back to richard nixon and the sort of the growth of the of the executive branch and the imperial presidents but also reflections on um, the Nazis and how Hitler came to power and um, mm. how he used some sort of uh, you know, people who were foolish in that situation, like um, um, you know, the generals. And, but I do think that it does seem to suggest that a wide-ranging executive power, the Palpatine seeks is against the 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 sort of um broad good of the universe which 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 i find to be particularly interesting because it is about um a diminution of power spreading out of power power isn't something that i think george lucas likes doesn't like power Mm. it doesn't like palpatine's ability to say i am the senate you know (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, it, it, there's a fixation on sort of natural laws and democracy and the natural rights that people have. I think in Star Wars, the power between seems to not care about at all. But power between does doesn't seem to be someone that I would say was. Um, I don't know. I think that he, he's someone that comes to to Anakin he, he develops a relationship with him and um, you know once Anakin comes into his circle he tries to manipulate Anakin but also he, he offers Anakin a kind of power that Anakin doesn't have access to through the the good side Anakin has a conversation and says well you know the Sith they use their emotions they're not not like, like like us, but as Palpatine and then as Sidious, 
he seems to communicate to Anakin that Anakin can have everything he wants if he just gives in to his emotions and gives into this side. It's 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 really Nietzschean in in, in a way because mm. it declares that he can just by just through his own will he can subvert all of these these sort of intricate political systems and bring peace and order to the to the universe. And, and I think that's why Palpatine sort of sits as someone you can frame a lot of some of Star Wars's philosophy against. I think, you know, yeah. the First Order, you get into you know, more like overly fascistic both aesthetics and tendencies. But, but Palpatine does seem to be the, you know, the as he's the villain, but also he's something that George Lucas frames himself in the story against and it does seem to be like as many of the 1970s people on the center left and the left they were very cautious about the kind of power that runaway executive government could have and i and i, I do think pa- palpatine really evokes that but also um in the phantom menace you have um you have this trade dispute um and in the trade dispute, you know, the, the people of Naboo, they go into the Senate and they're like, you know, um, can we get, you know, resolve from the problems that we have? But the, but the bureaucracy, which is so moribund, is attached to the Federation, which is imposing these, these you know, these, these rules on, on the people of the, Naboo, Naboo. And it does seem like the, the the bureaucracy is 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 tired and it's not really working and so you know the chancellor Pal, well, Pal, palpatine before he was the chancellor he was a senator he's trying to get to become the chancellor but he mm-hmm. used this system of poor bureaucracy he uses a system that's not working to try to edge his way into power so again it shows that the decay of institutions can really lead someone like Palpatine to 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 really take control. Yeah, so I think Palpatine, I think in the philosophy of, of Star Wars, Palpatine and to a lesser extent the other villains are something you could really frame George Lucas's philosophy against, I think. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. And and George Lucas has said as much that um, this is something that I was withholding from you guys. Um, but Simon, you were so excited that Nixon appeared in our conversations of this. We're always excited. Palpatine, Palpatine is modeled after Nixon. How do you feel about that, Simon? Well, I'm excited because that means a clone of Nixon is going to come back in a few years. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted. Somehow Nixon returned. Nixon, re- um, well, it's the Futurama thing where uh, they, they, his head survives in a floating thing and then he ends up like getting a robot's body and becoming like uh, president again of Earth mm. in, in the year 3000. So I'm, I'm, yeah. it's, it makes a lot of sense that you would you'd pick the big bad guy as Nixon. Although, um, yeah, I, I, I 
I, I'm I'm used to people taking shots at the king, so it's it's. it's... <laughs> <laughs> I I think that's that's why his kind of, in in the prequels at least, um, why Anakin's speech that he gives to Obi Wan um, when they're battling on Mustafar, he says that he has brought peace and justice, um, law and order back to the galaxy, like he's. To, to his new empire um and there's a focus on law and order so much through the prequels in the build-up mm. to who palpatine's going to become and i think that really really is well done to frame emperor palpatine in the originals as the nixon character um the the empirical one who rose to power after campaigning on law and order but anyway i'm not going to smear nixon <laughs> Here. Um, but yeah, George possible. Lucas. <laughs> George Lucas started writing this during Watergate. Yep. Um, and something I didn't actually know explicitly before doing research for this this episode is that Luke Skywalker was modeled off of Jimmy Carter, and I wow. love that. How do you feel about that? I mean. I was going to make a snide comment, but I won't. <laughs> I uh, love it. I, I think I think it makes sense. Yeah, it, it the does. farmer. The farmer, the blonde hair. He he picks up the the kind of the mantle and steps up and decides, I'm not actually going to fight you. I'm I'm going to try and reason with you, and when I have to, I'll use force. Which is exactly what Jimmy Carter did as president. He, he, the only time he mobilized the military during the Cold War um, was as a show of force in, I believe, Afghanistan um, against Russia, but he never actually had a military incursion. And mm -hmm. it's just, it works so well that Luke Skywalker is Jimmy Carter and he never knew this. And Jimmy Carter actually watched A New Hope. Um, at Camp David with Anwar Sadat in 1978 um, during the Camp David Accords, which is cool. I love that. I was going to say, and that makes me think that Jimmy Carter's whole career has been written by Joseph Campbell, which is quite a, a combination of, of things. <laughs> I would believe that. And I that, think the, the Nixon-Carter dynamic, um, I think it, it works. It probably works in mm -hmm. a lot of media that was being generated at the time because you know even like when we talked to ralph stedman stedman said that you know he designed a lot of those nixon cartoons because he was worried about the creeping fascism that was happening at the time and then but a lot of creatives really like fell in love with jimmy carter which is not obvious because he mm -hmm. was jimmy carter was a you know he was a he was a christian and things like that but um, Hunter Thompson wrote something very, very flowery about Jimmy Carter. So yeah, there was a sense that Jimmy Carter was this like new hope at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, irrespective of the way it turned out, but yeah, it was you know people were looking for a new hope, and and you know in the late seventies things were bleak, and you had this new hope of a of a universe that you could maybe you could unseat the the evil empire or something like that yeah so i think yeah all of that all of that bleeds into star wars 
I was just thinking, does that make Han Solo Ronald Reagan? Um, kind of out for himself. No, Simon. And then no. <laughs> they, no. they sort of turn they sort of turn Ronald Reagan into caring about his, his fellow man. <laughs> Boo, Simon. No. <laughs> Han Solo is not Ronald Reagan. Are you okay. kidding me? Okay. Just That's rude of you. I thought I'd throw that one out there, especially for Vaughn. Rude. See what reaction we get. Awful. <laughs> Simon. God damn it. <laughs> No. I think would that, make, would that make George Bush Chewbacca? <laughs> How <laughs> dare you? <laughs> it's not perfect, but it's fairly close. Uh, oh. oh my god. <laughs> you upset me at such a core level. Okay. <laughs> anyway, George Lucas. I'm going to brush past that, Simon. George Lucas has said multiple times that the originals are Vietnam. Like, no mincing words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is the Vietnam War. America is the empire, and the rebels are the Vietnamese people fighting Mm -hmm. for their lives and And their country. You get jungle warfare as well. Yes. In so much Star Wars media, you get jungle warfare. Um, So he, he said, quoting him from the Chicago Tribune, he said, quote, it was really about the Vietnam War. And that was the period where Nixon was trying to run for a second term, which got me to thinking historically about how to do democracies get turned, how do democracies get turned into dictatorships? Because the democracies aren't overthrown, they're given away. And I really love that quote um, because it's true. And I, I think one of the really incredible strengths of the prequels, they get a lot of hate. Um, for a lot of different things but I think one of the strengths is that they had to show a democracy turn into an empire and that's not an easy thing to show mm-hmm. um, yeah and it was it they, was generally believable as well I think yeah they, they, they the, really the, rancor, the, the decay of institutions the lack of um, yeah, assuredness about the people who were here, there to protect the democracy like the Jedi and then the the sort of Machiavellian tendencies of, of Palpatine, who's able to, you know, take advantage of the situation. I, I think people weren't expecting, you know, the, like the, the new um, Star Wars um, Phantom was, you know, like the biggest anticipated movie in the history of the world. And they weren't mm-hmm. expecting to sit through Senate hearings for, for that movie. Yeah. They were expecting lightsabers and stuff. So. Mm, but I love that so much. There's there's such a there's a balance that I think is so beautiful about the prequels, and a lot of people disagree with me on that. But it it also happens in Clone Wars, where in Cl- Clone Wars you get a lot of episodes that are just about Senate proceedings or about trying to find the votes for a particular policy um, or preventing the banking clan from removing restrictions. Um, on how much they can they can give away and if they can give money like give loans to both sides of the war and you get into all of this war profiteering that you would not expect in a kid's show Clone Wars was a children's series on Cartoon Network and they're they're dealing with all of these massive kind of concepts of war profiteering and corruption and how to spot corruption there's a brilliant arc um, in season three, where Padawan Ahsoka Tano, um, who is, she's um, Anakin's Padawan, 
she's teaching the children of Mandalore um, how to spot corruption in their government and from their representatives. And if they do spot corruption, what they should do, what steps they should take to hold them accountable. And that's in a kid's show. And it's extremely instructional. Like I was watching it fairly recently and I was like taking notes. I was like, damn, yeah, I, I hear you, Ahsoka. It's just, it's so well done in, in striking the balance between the kind of action of it and also holding a government accountable and showing how a government can devolve in this kind of way. Um, I really think Clone Wars is just an exceptional piece of art. They, they really delve into deeper questions that, that kind of brings it around to like what it means to be conscious and human and whether the circumstances of one's birth guide the rest of one's life. Um, whether like if one is created and born to live and die for one's government, does that negate the existence of free will? And that becomes really important in Clone Wars. Um, there are several arcs that mimic the Vietnam War and the, the kind of jungle uh, landscapes and troops having kind of psychological distress about why they're fighting this war, if, if it's even worth fighting, if it's worth winning, if they're doing the right thing by fighting droids. Um, and there's, there's like an example, um, there's a four episode arc on Umbara in I believe season five, which I actually um, recapped on the, the night of the election on our Twitter account. Um, and I don't think anybody interacted with it, but I was so happy about it because <laughs> it was a great comparison to the right in the US. Um, but this arc, it's absolutely heartbreaking. It pits the clones kind of programming against their moral consciences. And ultimately like the separatists and the Sith are shown as seeing no value to the clones lives. While the good guys, the Republic and the Jedi are kind of propped up to seemingly value every clone's life and being like, how could you not, they're humans but then still derogatorily claiming that the droids are not living creatures. And they're still calling them clankers and killing them in like swaths. And I think that leads to another kind of philosophical question in terms of American history and politics, where we can ask like, beyond how does fear motivate democracy's transformation into tyranny? Um, there's that question. There's the question of whether the difference between good and evil is just a matter of perspective. Um, to see your empire as the right way forward and decide that other people deserve to die um, so that you can uphold your empire. And then we have the question of like why we fight wars at all and why we have like quote unquote peacekeepers who are also military units and why the phrase um, when, when the clones are executing Order 66, the inhibitor ship chips activate that were in, implanted in them in their like embryonic stages in, on Kamino when the clones were being created. Um, and the, the Emperor gives out, or Palpatine gives out the order to kill all of the Jedi. In all of the arcs that deal with that, there's this phrase, quote, good soldiers follow orders. 
And that's what's used to signify the clones turning to the dark side and working for the emperor is good soldiers follow orders, which is such a Nuremberg defense for mm. the clones. And that's really brilliant. Um, but then, yeah, like it just, there are so many questions of like, whose lives do we value? Why do we value quote our people and the lives of our people more than the lives of our enemies? And why, like, why does all of this matter to an American audience? And why does it strike so deeply? Because it does for me. Every time I watch Clone Wars or Star Wars, I'm just like, damn, this is American history right here. And I think it's amazing. And I think everybody should watch it. Like, oh God, Clone Wars has so many cultural kind of landmarks too, where like there are different planets and different peoples that reflect kind of American history and American people. You have the gut, the the huts that are like gangsters from like 20s Chicago era, um, the Togrutas who are a Native American kind of um, parallel. That's like uh, Jedi Master Shakti and Padawan Asokatano. They're um, of the Togruta kind of people, and in one arc in Clone Wars, they're sold into slavery, and the Jedi have to go and save them from slavery. And it's this heartbreaking kind of recognition of what America has done to Native American peoples over time. Um, and they deal with such powerful and pervasive kind of things. There's the Twi'leks on Ryloth, who are um, Cham and Harris and Dulles people. They form a resistance group to overthrow the separatists in the first season of Clone Wars. And it gets into like disputes between the um, rebel leader and the Senator from Ryloth and how the Senator is just gonna hand them over to whoever pays the most essentially and make sure that he's safe and he doesn't actually give a shit about his people. And then the leader of the, the rebels, um, he like needs the support from the Jedi, but the Jedi won't give it unless he gives support to the Senator. And it's just like this infighting and politics and, oh, it's brilliant. And it shows just how visceral the kind of rebel cells are, um, how the, the war is so real for these people in this world completely separate, separate from Coruscant where the um, Senate is. So you have this juxtapositioning throughout the whole series of like, Senate disputes of these comfortable, like well-dressed, cared for senators. And then the actual visceral kind of experience of what a war is and the rebellion against separatists and even the rebellion against Jedi kind of control in the Ryloth episodes, um, Cham Syndulla says to Mace Windu, how long until we are fighting you for our freedom? after Mace Windu offers the Jedi's help in freeing them from um, the Separatists. And it's this, this just powerful kind of conversation of imperialism. So and, that, that was, sorry, Bon. No, sure. go ahead. I'm, I was gonna just, ask from sort of further away from the sort of Star Wars fandom and Star Wars um, universe, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm at that point compared to you, yourself. One one of the things I'm interested in um, discussing um, is how 
Star Wars throughout all its various you know films and TV shows and comics and other iterations, how it continues to frame and reframe the Jedi and how good, bad, mm. or indifferent they are. Because as someone who's maybe less involved in that world, the Jedi are, as you're introduced to them in the certainly the original trilogy, you know, it's these sort of heroic, forgotten, you know, figures who are able to draw on these great strengths and do these great, you know, uh, personal things and fight fight evil and, you know, have have powers beyond mortal man, as it were. But my understanding from, you know, seeing the, the prequels and discuss, you know, hearing discussions around that is that the the place for the Jedi in the extended universe is a much more complicated question than just Jedi good, Sith bad, mm-hmm. and that's it. With, with, is that is that a fair uh, fair interpretation of that? I absolutely think so, and I think I think that's that's exactly the heart of what what I am trying to talk about and failing to do succinctly today. Um, <laughs> No, you're the doing Jedi... very well. It's just you have a lot to talk about. So I want to talk about everything. Um, so the Jedi are really posed, like you said, as like the good guys in the originals. And I think that kind of works in a simpler kind of mm-hmm. framing and time where a lot of people were kind of questioning where the US was. Yeah. Um and I think it it's a lot more. A lot more complex when you when you get into the prequels because that is about the Jedi. Yeah, it's about the Jedi Order. You're seeing the Council. You're seeing how they interact with the Republic. They are separate from the Republic. Yeah, they're yeah they're like a hired police policing unit for the Republic. They are separate from them though. Their Mm -hmm. temple is far from the Senate, and it really it really shows how they're like a they're a hired group of mercenaries essentially for the Republic mm-hmm. um, while also being this kind of like UN quote unquote peacekeeper unit. And you can't be both. You, mm-hmm. you can't be the military generals, the hired mercenaries and also the peacekeepers. And that's, that's what the prequels and clone wars really throw out of balance is hold on a minute. How is this even happening? Like what, what is going on with these Jedi who we're supposed to believe are just good, just blanket mm-hmm. good. Um, and, and I, I was going sorry. to say for me although I'm not as big a fan of the, the prequels as you are and I have you know some questions around that I, I think what again what George Lucas deserves credit for is he didn't just go and make the same three films again when he mm-hmm. made the prequels so he had the, the original three films which were you know more sort of action adventure and um interpersonal sort of family drama um but then the prequels he very much stood back from that and told the story and tried to well to some extent sort of uh, um sort of remove the veil of, of secrecy around the the jedi and um sort mm-hmm. of place a light on them and I, I think that is a that's maybe not the step that a giant corporation would necessarily do if they were just writing that themselves is to say right what we're going to do is we're going to show you how you know um 
Darth Vader came to be, but it might not necessarily be with the same or have the same openness about, you know, our heroes have failures, our failings mm-hmm. are, are um, what you believe to be true from the original trilogy. You might actually have a different viewpoint on them after seeing the prequels. And again, for I have issues with the prequels for other things, but I think George deserves credit for not just remaking the same film um, that he did with his original trilogy, which I think is maybe a criticism you can make of the sequels is that they were mm. happier to retread kind of the the formula of the original trilogy, um, m- maybe in part as a, as a sort of um, reflection on the prequels, maybe not being a, as well loved by the wider audience as the original trilogy were. Yeah, and I think he was trying to, like, it's almost like Gibbon, you know, like the rise and fall of the, of the Roman Empire, he was trying to put together a world like, like Simon, you said mm-hmm. on the podcast, like, you know, like um, build the world and then show you how the world sort of disintegrates into the, the world of a new hope. And that's a mm-hmm. different task than designing those original movies because they were kind of, they're a little bit self-contained. They grew mm-hmm. a little bit, but they weren't, you know, it wasn't this intricate world of, um, you know, different worlds, different planets, um, senates, different senate procedures, the way the Jedi interact with the senate, the, the way the Jedi interact with the individual planets, um, why the Jedi became unstuck, you know, because how is it the Palpatine's able to depict the Jedi as potentially trying to take power from the senate? Um, the, the the Jedi become generals as well, so that they develop, you know, much like a higher status from this status is almost like um, they're almost like a Buddhist group. They're 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 powerful. They'll they'll fight when they need to. They have this this intricate way of getting people involved, getting people in, finding people who are talented to to get into the order, and having actually a quite difficult system for people to get in. And, and really being sort of priests almost to becoming these generals. And when that, and then, so I think uh, Lucas is able to show how the, 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 those um, stereotypes that we saw of good versus evil in, in the, in the first movies become a little bit bleak, you know, a little bit more gray mm-hmm. in, when the Jedi take on all these different roles that help Palpatine to depict them as really a threat to the to the to the universe, and then helps Palpatine be able to take control. And it's a completely different task to just making those original movies. And I think maybe the the sequels, you know, they saw themselves as just trying to recapture the things that people liked about the original movies. But then I also yeah. think in the in that movie, The Last Jedi, there's a lot of, um, you know, like I'm not necessarily a big fan of it, but there's a lot of work on the internal life of the Jedi or, or what being a Jedi actually is on, you know, um, the the lead character goes in, into contemplation and isolation um luke also you know he he it's not just that 
the Jedi are warriors. It's that they've achieved this sort of higher state of internal, you know, um, contemplation and, and, you know, um, evaluation of themselves and their anger and their, well, their, their disappointment, their, their ambitions, and they're able to achieve a higher truth of positive um, feeling that you, that the, 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 the viewer can see is better than what the Sith is doing. You know? and, and I don't think any film before The Last Jedi really dealt with what it means to be a Jedi and how, how does one mm. be a Jedi, you know? Yeah, I can see that for sure. And delving into kind of like the actual sacred text of the Jedi. Exactly, um, yeah. What the kind of code is that they're actually upholding. Because there's a lot of talk throughout the prequels of like, it's the Jedi way or it's the Jedi code. And um, yeah, I agree with you that the the actual lifestyle of a Jedi is really explored much more in, in The Last Jedi. Because if um, you just say it's the Jedi way or the Jedi code, how are you able to really communicate that to people who are really on the margins like Anakin Skywalker, who seems mm. to really need some sense of direction, some you know view of how he can control his own life, and who also seems to be subverting some of the procedures and the behaviors of being a Jedi. Like you can lose someone like that if you don't know what it means to be a Jedi. And I think Windu and, and Yoda, they're kind of obnoxious, you know in the in yeah. the prequels they they you know they they're complacent as simon said you know and and because of that they 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 open up the, the opportunity for someone to exploit some of their more vulnerable members yeah yeah um, i was mm. just going to say um there's lots of things we could talk about um with all the various uh, Star Wars media, one thing I would like to get into, I don't know if we want to do it now, if we want to touch on it later, we've talked a bit about how the original Star Wars came to be, you know, you know creation during during the 70s and you know, mm-hmm. Vietnam and Watergate and Nixon. Um, and I, I think it is worth uh, touching upon, as we've talked, the, the sort of early to mid-90s is when George Lucas was writing the scripts um for what would become the prequels and he was inspired um I, I guess to some extent by the politics of america during during that time so you obviously have the newt gingrich character i think newt gunray i think as mm-hmm. he's sort of represented in the star wars uh, world yes. and, and so we have a, a time in the early and mid 90s which was as we've talked about in previous episodes where um, this sort of parliament, parliamentary Republican power came in after the the Republican Revolution, and you know, taking the the House and Senate, and we have that kind of being reflected back, I guess, in in the sort of deep political world that we see in the prequels. And you compare that to the sequels that come later, which are the, sort of the the Disney films, and they're they're just taking on or trying to recapture some of the magic of the originals, but without necessarily in like adding any politics or, or philosophy in, in the same way, mm. which is kind of baked in 
to George with his original six films. I don't know if you've got any any thoughts on on the writing off off uh, of the prequels and the characters that were happening at that time in American life. And just life. before with like with Newt Gunray, he's a guy who's the leader of the Trade Federation, and he takes on uh, a high level of power than other mm-hmm. representatives. They say, you know, Palpatine says that the, the bureaucracy is, is his. It belongs it belongs mm-hmm. to him. And that's really reflective of Newt Gingrich's power yes. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. You know? The Prime Minister of America. The Prime Minister of America. This this is exactly what I want to get into. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> if you have any thoughts, Simon. Okay. Um, so yeah. All right. There are three ways to view the prequels in terms of history. One is what you said, Toby. Um, in terms of the rise and fall of the Roman uh, Republican Empire. Um, There actually is an Order 66 in Roman history. Uh, Constantius II in around 337 um, ordered an Order 66 uh, on all of the Roman imperial family because he got very paranoid that somebody else in his line of succession would try to kill him. So he ordered all loyal Roman troops around the empire to kill his various family members. Um, there's, there's a lot in Star Wars that maps onto the Roman, um, the Roman Empire and Republic. And I actually originally years ago wanted to do my PhD on that when I was a classicist, but I did not, I changed my mind. Um, The second kind of view is one that I find really fascinating and I thought of one night and was very pleased with myself. Um, It's kind of looking at the prequels as a legitimate prequel to the Vietnam of the originals and looking at them as a kind of parallel of the U.S. in World War II where Anakin is the U.S., thinking the Jedi are the good guys and um, that they're doing the right thing by, by stopping the kind of evil ally, uh, evil Axis powers. Um, and throughout all of Clone Wars, you see Anakin be this like powerful, like righteous character who's trying to uphold the peace and like kind of battling with himself of like, am I doing the right thing um, throughout this war? and restoring peace and freedom and justice and security to the world. Um, The US thought that forcing democracy on other places would be the the kind of way forward for the whole world to be a kind of democratic utopia. And that led into the Cold War. And ultimately, like at the end of World War II, the US dropped the atomic bombs. And that's really Anakin's moment of switching sides and saying, I have to be the dark side to save the people I love. And I, th- I think that's a really powerful way to look at the prequels, um, that they really do kind of precede the natural progression into Vietnam uh, in American history. But the other way is what you said, Simon, um, that a lot of this did come out of kind of 90s politics and early 2000s dealing with 9-11 right in the middle, well, right before the second and third films were released. Um, There's this gradual escalation of war in the prequels and this undermining of power 
and of leaders and of leaders saying like, I know what's best for you. I know that they have weapons of mass destruction. So we have to escalate. We have to send more troops. We have to buy more guns and sell more guns. Um, and as you both have said with Newt Gumray, there's this, this focus on the trade federation and the taxes, the, the kind of turmoil that has engulfed the galactic Republic. This is quoting from the, um, the opening scrawl of Phantom turmoil has engulfed the galactic republic the taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute hoping to resolve the matter with a blockade of deadly battleships the greedy trade federation has stopped all tr all shipping to the small planet of naboo naboo while the congress of the republic endlessly debates this alarming chain of events the supreme chancellor has secretly dispatched um, two Jedi Knights, the guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy to settle the conflict. That is not, that is wildly different from the original trilogy as we've been saying this whole time. And it really maps on to 90s politics. I see the Jedi as liberals in the, pre in the prequels, that they are this new Democrat, this, this centrist kind of unit that's just like, I trust the government to do what the government needs to do. And if we have to kind of allow um, certain people to gain more powers just to ensure peace and nobody's rocking the boat, so be it. That is the, the core Jedi philosophy for me in the prequels is that the Jedi are just liberals. They are the Bill Clinton Democrats of Star Wars in, in the prequels for me. So in the originals, I think they were like this, like, as we've said, kind of black and white, good versus evil for the most part. And in the originals, it's like, now we have a spectrum, don't we? And we have undecided voters where Anakin's right in the middle. And he's like, I don't know if I really trust new Democrats because they're doing some shady kind of shit. And at least the people on the right are saying what they're going to do. You know what I mean? How do you guys, how do you guys feel about that? The Jedi as liberals. I think that's a fair reading. Um, I think it's a shock to everyone that Vaughn that you might have some suspicion or uh, suspicious feelings towards liberals. I don't think you've raised that one before. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an that's an interesting reading. I I, I suppose I'd never specifically thought in those terms but it does make sense um as you present it um this idea of well <laughs> what the failings of liberals are often presented as and mapping that towards how the prequels um show um show various characters to the way they act in and how jedi are sort of perceived in the actions they take yeah i i can i can definitely um i can definitely see that i i'm trying to think it's been a while since i've watched the prequels to be honest so i'm, I'm kind of living off my own memory of them more than mm -hmm. any specific details that might have but yeah i, I can definitely see that I... yeah i do i do think there's sort of um there are always like a bureaucratic institution that's connected to a democracy and um, says that it's protecting 
the democracy and, and works towards that, but kind of isn't taking a stand on the the sort of the, the decay and the inconsistencies in the in the society. It's always it's very meritocratic and liberals believe in that. You know, they're finding kids with the with the right metachlorine counts, which is which is very different from the the first movies. But yeah, they're finding kids with the right metachlorine count. They you know they're judging will you be able to get into this elite institution or not? You know, and um, and uh, and and I think that yeah, they are they are kind of liberals because there's 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 a lack of um, imagination. Mm. that they have at that that point in time and i think you could probably always you could always find the groups like that in in republics like they like they were they were a liberal institution they were part of why the republic worked the way it did they were a check on on power in some way um they informed and um competent check on power but then they just grew to be tired and moribund and mm-hmm. people were able to to exploit them at that time and the people who were able to exploit them are you know captured interests like uh, even before you know you, you go all the way to you know, chancellor palpatine you've got the the freight of the the trade association like why is a a tax dispute going to create something that will lead to or potentially to a war it shouldn't do in a in a functioning system it shouldn't yeah. do do that in a system where the the Jedi are, you know, protecting people, or 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 the Jedi's um, original aim is 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 being, you know, utilized. But it is in a in a, in a floundering and decaying system, and and those kind of captured interests can take over power. And you, you see that with um with the 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 leader of um, Naboo with Padme. You know, she mm-hmm. goes back because she doesn't believe that the institution can really protect her and protect her, her uh, planet you know even even if um, someone from that, that country like Palpatine becomes the chancellor you know um, she doesn't believe in the system it isn't enough and she's able to utilize the the liberals to really actually have a you know instead of being mercenaries in in order to um, placate and mediate a dispute to actually go there and be heroes and you know to to help the people of that planet and try to you know um, act in the role that they they were meant to do and, and were, were made for and I think with, with Palpatine you do see a lot of the, va- the values that not necessarily leftists but liberals do not like you know um, Palpatine doesn't believe in natural laws. He says, you know, I, I am the law. I am the Senate. You know, if I want it to be, it is. He doesn't believe in the, the, the liberal system of checks and balances. He doesn't believe in the Senate. Mm-hmm. He doesn't believe in the Jedi. Um, he, he, he believes in, the, in a sort of a will to power of the fact that he is, he, the fact that he is in control and he is powerful means that there will be peace and there will be balance and there will be order in the universe, law and order, just because he is. It's almost, it's a, it's almost like a Hobbesian view of, um, you know, the, the people in the universe give him power. If they give him power, he'll protect them. 
it isn't that their their rights or that they have natural rights or that their 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 taxes and their trade rights are going to be respected. It's that he's just going to protect them. But by protecting them, he gets to do whatever he wants them. He gets to exploit them, which is something that obviously liberals don't like. And um, and I think it, it frames the liberal Jedi Order versus Palpatine, I think, very, very, very well. You know? I mean, there's still some things there around, I, I, I think, a critique of even Stalin and communism that you could see in Palpatine, which which means that the, I don't necessarily think that the that um, George Lucas's characterizations are particularly left. I think it's a critique of liberals and and um, you know and, and he thinks that liberals can be better and they should be, but that they're, that they're a failing. I think. I think it's interesting yeah. what we've just been discussing with regards um, the Jedi and just thinking about it a little bit further, the party of um, of Jimmy Carter was very different to the par- Democratic Party of mm-hmm. Bill Clinton. And by yes. by 92, and um, the, the, the new Democrats have come along and they've basically embraced the the Ronald Reagan message of it's okay to work, you know, big corporations are good and we should be working with them. And um, I suppose this, this idea of the prequels having a nineties democratic party feel to it is even funnier, I guess, if if you were to look at uh, Luke Skywalker as Jimmy Carter. And so the comparison of Jimmy Carter kind of coming along post the decay of a Bill Clinton presidency is um, a funny way to rearrange these things and to think about them because mm. the the shift from the the poor farmer um, who has something about him and goes on to do great things is different from the the guy who's got the degrees and who's got a high medi- medical account and is uh, working with the corporations and <laughs> going to get into power that way. Uh, that's a really interesting uh, way of, of thinking about the, the power dynamic shift within the Democratic Party between the late 70s and early 90s. And then obviously the sort of reverse of that in the time timeline of, uh, of the Jedi. And the Jedi managing the war as well, you know, as generals, mm-hmm. you know, the, the ex- um, acceleration of this law and order and war state and the, the Jedi whose original purpose really kind of isn't that you know being um taken in by that and and ad- adopting this kind of new sort of law and order and military you know capacity as well is is a sort of co-optation of of their values by sort of outside interests but then you get um you know a new hope where you get the Jimmy Carter thing afterwards which is, you know, the timeline's all fucked up, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> what, we're, what we're saying is that once the Democratic Party falls apart, we need a new Jimmy. We get Carter. a new Jimmy. So uh, that's that's positive. Um, we, we've we've been joking in our, in our chat about who we'd sort of map to various characters within Star Wars and um, whether or not Bernie would uh, come into this in any way. Um we were probably mm-hmm. touching that before before we close actually about some of the uh <laughs> other combinations of people that you could have 
um, such as Vaughn, you've got some interesting thoughts on who the club might be. And um, mm. we we will definitely get to that. But before we do, to frame that, I want to talk about um, how media is co-opted by the consumer because we've talked sure. a lot, a lot about how George Lucas's own philosophies and his intent for these films mm-hmm. were very critical of conservatives um, and American power structures at large. Um, I think viewing the the Jedi as liberals is so damning and really does fall in line with kind of George Lucas's own philosophy um, mm-hmm. and what he wanted for these films because it is the complacency that causes extremism. It's just allowing things to happen, allowing power to be dissolved. I think Padme is quite a leftist character um, in comparison to others. And she has that iconic line from Revenge, uh, Revenge of the Sith, in which she says, this is how democracy dies with thunderous applause. Um, And she's just watching this unfold and she's been fighting for years through all of the Clone Wars, the the series and through um, Attack of the Clones and even as queen, she's been fighting for the Jedi to like get out of the way essentially and let the politicians actually do their job um, of stopping this kind of power grab by, by the chancellor. And yeah, so, so the intent of these films was pretty much anti-conservative, but that does not stop the consumer from making what they want out of films. And through the last four decades, Star Wars has been co-opted by conservatives um, in so many ways, so many awful ways. You have Reagan, of course, the golden child, appropriating Star Wars um, as the name specifically for his missile uh, strategic defense initiative in 83 um, later on he uses the, the words the evil empire concerning the USSR in his speech to the National Association of Evangelicals which we covered um, during our Reagan trilogy on the podcast um, and even in other speeches he ended it with the forces with us and Lucas George Lucas actually unsuccessfully um, tried to sue for the trademark infringement <laughs> of using the word, the name Star Wars for the, the strategic defense initiative. Um, and it, it failed because there's like this very vague language about how like a political idea can't be trademarked or something. It's something ridiculous, but Lucas pissed about it. And he never, he hadn't sued for the name of Star Wars before. He was quite liberal with who could use it. Um, and as soon as Reagan did, he was like, absolutely not get wrecked. Um, we have tons of other politicians using Star Wars in just their, as their way of being like, how do you do fellow kids? Like you get Obama talking about Jedi mind tricks in a few talks. You have Hillary Clinton trying, failing. Um, and then more conservatives, you have Dick Cheney and Ted Cruz, which Ted Cruz just absolutely destroyed star wars in a talk like last year i think he was trying to like relate to people and he ended up just completely 
dropping the ball and muddling the stories and stuff, but that's hilarious. Um, so Dick Cheney specifically saw himself as Darth Vader and critics called him Darth Vader to the point that he started embracing it. And he, <laughs> he dressed his, his black lab, his dog up as Vader for Halloween in 2007. He started coming out to the Imperial March at political appearances. <laughs> That's fucking um, strange in this fiction, man. He's the weirdest. He's so weird. Um, and George Lucas, again, was pissed because he does not like conservatives. And he said in an interview that Dick, Ch Dick Cheney is absolutely not Vader. Quoting him, he said, he is not a promising young man who is turned to the dark side by an older politician like Darth Vader, um, end quote. But rather he is more akin to Palpatine who is, who is the older politician who fixes the game. Um, by 2015, you had conservatives who weren't joking. Like Dick Cheney was joking. He was like in on the joke that he's like, oh sure, I'm Darth Vader, whatever. And then George Lucas was like, absolutely fucking not. And after Lucas kind of snapped back, conservatives were like, well, why aren't we the dark side? And you get sociopaths like Steve Bannon, who openly <laughs> said that, quote, darkness is good because it distracts your political opponents. And, quote, Dick Cheney, Darth Vader, Satan, that's power. It only helps us when they get it wrong, when they're blind to who we are and what we're doing end quote that's steve bannon in 2015 talking about how being dick cheney darth vader or satan is a good thing so with that said i want to talk about updating who the characters are in star wars with our kind of ideas of politicians um, our contemporary politicians if palpatine was originally supposed to be nixon uh and later, um, George Lucas said that Dick Cheney is more Darth Vader, or sorry, is more Palpatine. Did I just totally muddle that? I think I did. No, I think that's okay. Okay. Um, and then you also have Luke Skywalker being Jimmy Carter. I want to talk about who our contemporary politicians would be. What are your ideas? contemporary politicians um i would say that that palpatine has has now had a third rendition that he is now a third person in american history and that new person is mitch mcconnell not only for his like appearance but also yes. um that, that's a good one because satan I, I was struggling yeah. to because he, he's not trump and that's the point he's mm hey trump i don't even know if trump fits into the uh, maybe a jab of the heart or something <laughs> <laughs> maybe he, he definitely could be job i was just thinking general hux for trump but oh okay general hux is too put together yeah and ultimately he has a bit of a redemption arc so yeah job of the hut doesn't he sucks or maybe zero the hut who is a minor character and absolutely fucking sucks what's that know? little rat thing called the one that everyone hates um the one that um oh the um um yeah maybe trump could be him 
Oh, that's just gone out of my mind. But yes. Yes, maybe Trump could be him. But I think that McConnell thing is apt because... Agreed. um, You know, like, he's a sort of Machiavellian backdoor Mm. character he's you know Mm -hmm. he's he's really good at the senate procedure yep he he doesn't care about um using power to its its limits so yeah he's very he's very like uh mcconnell yeah absolutely um i'm trying to it's it's hard trying to necessarily i I think mitch mcconnell is a, a perfect palpatine i'm trying to think if there's anyone I have such low opinion of politicians that it, it's it's very hard for me to think of anyone as being sort of good characters, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm. Um, That's fair. Because it's like, that. would Obi-Wan like just continue to like keep children in cages and bomb villages and stuff? It's like, prob- mm. prob- probably not. Um, okay, mean- so everyone's part of the Empire, which is probably <laughs> how George Lucas wants us to think. So I agree. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you could. I mean, the, the obvious one from a uh, from a West Wing point of view would be Bail Organa and Barack Obama. Yes, um, because um, the Barack Obama, well, Barack Obama was the uh, inspiration for the Jimmy Smith's character, President Santos. So I guess you could put those. I I don't know enough about Bail Organa outside of I've only seen him in the the see the prequels so maybe ron you can tell me how far off he is from an obama character Mm. um he is a very high-ranking uh respected kind of official in Mm -hmm. the in the senate through all of clone wars um he helps kind of backdoor trade routes to like get past blockades with the the senate kind of approval Mm -hmm. on the ship um while smuggling for the set the the rebels to help people under the blockade so he's like a younger um, joe biden then. <sighs> um no he's definitely not i <laughs> um, i could see him as shades of obama but not fully obama yeah. if that makes sense like he's I- definitely a presence he definitely like when he delivers a speech pat in in one one um episode padme like begs him to deliver a speech because she thinks people will listen to him more than they'll listen to her mm-hmm. uh just because he can command a room in that kind of way and i think that's very obama yes of like yeah. being the kind of personable one who people respect um and they'll vote alongside whether they kind of really agree or not like he has that kind of charisma so yeah I, I think that could be a, a fair comparison. Um, thinking about... Write... Would... Oh, sorry, I was go going to say, you did, you did write down some politicians and some character names, so I didn't know if you wanted to go through one list or another and then talk about those, or if you just wanted to kind of be more freewheeling on this. Mm, we can be freewheeling on this. Um, I was just thinking that, that you said, would Obi-Wan leave kids in cages? And that's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. Because at first it was like, of course not, he's Ewan. But um, it does get kind of complex in Clone Wars of what the jurisdiction of a Jedi is. And earlier on in Clone Wars, he's definitely much more of the, we need to follow the code. And even, even in Revenge of the Sith, he's still like, that's not the Jedi way, Anakin. Only Sith steal in absolutes. Mm-hmm. 
But there are some some episodes where he's like, we can't do anything to help these people. We have to move on. Um, mm. Even in the slaving colony, they they help the group that they're looking f- to help, but they do leave the slaving colony ultimately. Um, and I think it's it's Anakin driving to kind of dismantle the slavers because he was a slave as a child. Um, so Anakin or Obi Wan does have some kind of shades of again liberalism. Yeah. Of. Yeah of what is our jurisdiction here? How far can we kind of go in, in helping people? And should we even try that? Or is that overstepping? So I do think Obi-Wan might leave kids in cages if it's not necessarily within the Jedi's jurisdiction. So maybe he could be, I don't want to say it. I don't want to equate the two, but if. What what I'm kind of fearing here is that AOC is going to go the Anakin route and is going to, end up working for the GOP. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's an interesting one, isn't it? I was uh, I was thinking that. Who would AOC be? And I I see her a bit as a Padme, but I don't know if she's fully a Padme. I right. think she's like Ray, right? Really? Yeah. Mm, you have more faith in AOC than I do. <laughs> Well, I mean, she's a sort of, she's sort of from, she's from Queens, mm. you know, um, so it's from a sort of authentic background. She's uh, obviously like a, a an emerging female leader and a kind of, you know, she's like in, um like 40 years ago, the person she is would have been like a Kennedy or something like mm. someone from like a, a man from like a rich family who like we know is going to become a really important politician in in the future you know so she's she's taking up that kind of position she's subverting those um genre expectations and she's um a willful and and strong individual that that the other side hates so yeah that's actually a really good uh that's a really good yeah Yeah. the the only worry about that that. is if we go with the star lords uh, comparison for that that means we're going to find out that she is actually a kennedy all along (laughs) (laughs) the ultimate plot twist yeah everybody's a kennedy aoc is a kennedy or even worse she's a mcconnell (laughs) what if she was related to mitch mcconnell i mean that that's 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 what it might be you know Mm -hmm. jeez no wonder she's so upset with him Mr. Birthday again. Who do who do we think the club would be? I think Jar Jar. Thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, like it. Well, just the useful idiot. Like I don't know. Yeah, and kind of like she gets a bit of a step up in mm-hmm. her position in government, but only so that she can prop up the next guy up. Like Jar Jar in um, Attack of the Clones, his he's moved up to be the representative from Naboo, uh, or he's promoted to be the representative, and he uh, makes the motion on the Senate floor that the Chancellor sh- or that um, Senator Palpatine should be should replace the Supreme Chancellor. Mm-hmm. See, I was wondering uh, whether or not. Um... Jar Jar Binks was actually Jill Stein and um, how that might map 
with um, her impact on the 2016 election, but mm. just me. I think I think in how I'm thinking, Jill Stein and, and the Clove are very similar in their actions mm -hmm. of between the 2016 and 2020 elections. So yeah. I think probably, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're both Jar Jars. They're both Jar Jars. It makes you wonder, though, who Mayor Pete would be. Is there anyone super Ooh, ambitious? Oh. oh, that's a good question. But someone I don't like, because I was thinking Lux Bontari, but I like him. It's um, Dark Mauls, isn't it? No, he's not cool <laughs> enough to be Maul. Don't even. He is super cool. Absolutely not. <laughs> I was actually thinking that because one of the characters you did write down was Maul question mark. I was like, no, but no politician is as cool as No Maul. politician fits Maul. That's why there's a question mark. So I'm like, mm, <laughs> nobody's cool enough or, or, or sexy enough to be Maul. <laughs> Jesus. That's a, that's a separate conversation, Bob. It's all the same conversation. It's Don't you worry, Simon. No, but... I don't think there is a mall. No. He's too great. Yeah, because unless it's like, because um, Darth Maul is appealing to people on, like on the left, even if you mm -hmm. are or appealing to us, even though yeah, he's it's hard side. because he's appealing on like a visceral level as like a sort of a quiet and strong character even though he's a villain and you can't really do that with your political enemies really it's difficult yeah it's it, the fly. You, you can find them some of them who are crafty and you think they're crafty you know you're gingrich and you mcconnell's but it's, it's hard to like get those qualities from, from if, if elon musk were more handsome and charming then maybe but that that would be a bit no <laughs> i love darth maul way too much um through all of Clone Wars, he is my favorite character. And Rebels. Um, and Solo. He just... He goes through these transformations that are so visceral. And his like mental capacities are just brilliant on screen. It's... He's a very visceral character. And everything he feels, he kind of shows and, and talks through this... like the <laughs> the obsession he has with vengeance for from Kenobi and they form this kind of deep almost romantic intimacy around the vengeance and um hatred that they have for one another mm -hmm. it's it's just a really really just powerful portrayal i'm gonna say john mccain <laughs> i'm okay. gonna say john mccain is my darth maul if i have to pick someone because he does think he's doing the right thing right. um he has respect like deep respect for kenobi as someone who could have taken him down um i don't know if john mccain had a kind of like enemy or nemesis but even if we're framing with joe biden they were like best friends but they were on opposite sides of the aisle and i can see that being the like a kind of our world relationship between maul and kenobi mm -hmm. 
I was just thinking, does that make Han Solo Mitt Romney? Because he's kind of, you know, handsome, a bit duplicitous. Um, you know, he's... Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. Excellent. I'm glad I want that casting in the next film. I'm glad you're happy. Well, I'm sure, Mitt has so many children and grandchildren. I'm sure one of them can act. <laughs> you hope so. I did actually just see before we started this podcast that Mitt Romney was called a communist by some Republicans. So um, maybe he just. Stop. Thought, yeah. What? They were booing him and calling him a communist at like was it Utah. It was something he was in America where he was at some convention or something like that. And they were like booing him off stage and calling him a communist. So. He's... God, that's so hot. So <laughs> he's falling further and further into your lap. Amazing. I love that. Right. Is there anything um, else we'd like to touch on the character side of things, or um, because I would also like just to get your general thoughts on the Disneyfication of Star Wars as well before we. Do oh yeah. Up. So, is there anything else we'd like to touch on? I say touch on Dick Cheney. That's a terrible sentence. Yeah. Uh, is there anything yeah. we'd like to touch on here before we move on to uh, the other closing parts of this episode? Um, I think I'm good on characters, unless you guys have any. No, I mean, I, I did find it difficult to compare because we get to know the intricacies of Star Wars characters and mm. we get to, you know, sometimes they're bad, but we get to find out that they're doing it for the right reasons, as it were, or sometimes right. we just think they're cool. No one thinks politicians are cool, so it, it's, it's a, a bit <laughs> do more... You, do you know what? I think part of the limits of the comparison is that we still don't have an era where politicians have done anything tremendous yeah i mm. think if we if we like mm. went into history and we started like picking i think we we'd, it'd be easier to do but mm. until some of the, like these especially like the the democrats or you know like uh, our placeholder heroes actually do something we won't really be able to compare them yeah to... L- like if you were to pick lincoln as someone rather yeah than... yeah you could you could pick yeah lincoln, or yeah. whoever yeah um that kind of thing right okay uh, before we do close up because we are coming up to two hours now um i did want to get your thoughts on on um we've touched on a little bit but the disney purchase and how that has impacted the in-universe side of things and also the sort of the larger conversation around what star wars is because as with anything you know or with a, a lot of things in the in the creative realm you know this was born out of someone's imagination this wasn't a a corporation trying to you know necessarily make billions of dollars with every iteration you know this was a guy coming along and telling a story he had and was inspired by the various things he was inspired by Mm -hmm. Uh, star wars as it stands now are you optimistic that disney will continue to you know hire the right people and allow you know, give give the room to people to tell stories in a way which is, you know, whether it's, you know, retelling American history or it's trying to teach lessons to children or it's trying to uh, bring in f- philosophy and um, philo- philosophical studies into this. What are your thoughts on, on the Disney purchase in general and the future of, of the Star Wars um, universe and the Star Wars umbrella under under Disney? Um, so that's a very good question. So 
as we've talked about before, Disneyfication is one of the chapters of my my dissertation. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of thoughts about when Disney buys a property and what they do with it afterwards. I'm very cynical about why they're doing it. Um, I think Disney is more profit driven than most companies. Um, and that their art can suffer for that, especially in recent years or in the 21st century specifically now with that said as we said earlier um disney really did away with a lot of the canon and the extended universe um as part of the main storyline of star wars and their stated purpose for doing that was so that their directors and writers and and storytellers could have complete creative control and freedom and allow for some suspense and surprise for the audience. And if that was their goal and they came out with this sequel trilogy, that's a shame, <laughs> I think. Because <laughs> it, it wasn't very surprising. Last Jedi was surprising. Um, this is something I've been talking about a lot recently and always, but that I'm really coming around to, to enjoying The Last Jedi a lot more because it's very different. As we mm-hmm. said, it, it explores, as Toby said earlier, it explores the kind of Jedi code. Um, and it does introduce philosophy in a way that I was not expecting Disney to do after Force Awakens because I don't think they really do in Force Awakens. Yeah. And Rise of Skywalker, it could have been so much better there were so many other storylines that were proposed um if you if you go on youtube you can watch some of the um animated kind of retellings of what rise of skywalker or episode nine was supposed to be Mm -hmm. um and they're a lot better (laughs) than (laughs) what happened but i still i enjoyed rise of skywalker because it's still star wars and i love star wars um if you couldn't tell but yeah, I think they kind of played it safe and did away with a lot of the innovative stuff that did happen in The Last Jedi with Ryan Johnson. Yeah. Um, so again, I'm a little bit skeptical, but as we saw with um, Mandalorian, they aren't that afraid of branching into new storylines and kind of challenging some social views. Um in the wider world and they're also bringing in like Ahsoka Tano is getting a show and um Cassian Andor is getting a show and Kenobi and Bad Batch is coming and it's going to be questioning all sorts of different philosophies that that they kind of have to question to do these shows well so I'm kind of on the fence a little bit I'm more excited after seeing The Mandalorian um I'm extremely excited for The Bad Batch this week I can't wait to see how they build the empire um, and re-engage the, the kind of clone troopers in the immediate aftermath of Order 66. That's going to be really, really interesting, especially from a political perspective, but also just as a viewer. And then the last thing I want to say on this is that Disney, very, very recently, um, I don't know if you guys have watched Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but Disney okay. has given, sorry, what? I have seen the the series, yeah. 
Disney has given me some hope with what they're willing to wade into. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they have decided if, if you haven't seen that show, it deals a lot with um, racial injustice in America and racial identity um, with a black man assuming the role of Captain America and what that means kind of culturally and historically for black people in the US. Um, I think they, even just broaching the topic was a very new thing for Disney to be doing. Disney right now is still dealing with a lot of backlash during um, from Star Wars where they kind of completely dropped um, Rose, the yeah. Asian American actress and um, Finn, John Boyega's character, um, the black Jedi, well, he was supposed to be a black Jedi, um, and they just completely kind of dropped him from Rise of Skywalker and marginalized these characters and also said that there would be a gay couple in Rise of Skywalker and it was just like two people cheering in the background who kissed that they erased out of it for the the Chinese market. Yeah. Um, so between those two i'm having i'm struggling about whether i'm sorry whether i like believe that they'll do a good job with it um and what they'll be willing to go into i do think though that um i've read that that marvel doesn't have as much of a market in um, china as star wars does so Mm -hmm. they felt kind of safer going with or I believe that they they felt a bit safer going into kind of social justice issues in Falcon and the Winter Soldier because it wouldn't have that much of an impact on the Chinese market, especially because Disney Plus as a streaming platform, I don't mm-hmm. think is in China at the moment. I may be wrong on that, um, but they have a different version of it, I think, there. So maybe they're more willing to do these things in Marvel than they would be in Star Wars because it affects their profit margin if they do it in Star Wars. But I do think we'll we'll see a lot of new things with the streaming service of Disney Plus, um, which I have a lot of problems with on a just personal level and economic level. But um, I think cinema is branching into a very, very new and exciting for a film historian from my point of view um a very exciting new way that cinematic universes 40 years ago weren't even kind of conceived of like this when when george lucas proposed doing three different trilogies of the same storyline people were like you want to what? <laughs> like yeah. this film isn't going to make any money. And then it made 775. And they're like, maybe we should listen to you a little bit. Um, and then by 81, he was like, oh no, you guys were right. This will never happen. We can't have a cinematic universe. And now we have like 45 shows, 11 films, seven more slated. Like there's, it's, it's a complete cinematic universe as Marvel is. So I think the streaming platforms Um, are really revolutionizing things. So all of that is a very long-winded way to say that I am not happy that Disney purchased Star Wars because I think they are a monopoly and need to be broken up. They own too much intellectual property and Mm -hmm. it is very dangerous for artists and creators. Um, Disney has a lot of internal problems with how they treat their staff and how they treat animation studios and animators um, as well as other kind of technicians, but specifically animators. 
However, do I have some faith that they will try to wade into what, like the market is shifting in the US that leftist people or left-leaning people are the largest market. So do I think they'll actually pivot towards the largest market now? Yes, I do. Um, hmm. They did fire, uh, what's, what's her name? Um, oh, she means nothing Oh, to me. yes. The, yeah. um, the, Cara the, Dune. Yes, the actress for her comments. and Yeah, that one. Um, yeah, get wrecked. Um, <laughs> she, yeah, so like they're willing, I think, to lean towards the left-leaning audience and the market as it is regulating itself um and that's really pissing off conservatives so that makes me happy so we'll see we'll see where it goes in the future i have a bit of faith for it but overall i'm not really ecstatic that disney bought star wars but i'm still happy it's happening because i enjoy star wars it's a very complicated feeling i have i can imagine because it's it's clear that you love star wars and enjoy the content that is being created around it and because Disney has such um, such a, a large machine around it, it allows mm. so many things to kind of move forward at once. So, you know, we, we may end up getting, I mean, there has been talk about, I think, was it Ryan Johnson still getting a trilogy of films? I'm not sure where yes. that actually landed in the end. And um, so we, we may see a, a, a greater continuation of, of the lore than we would if, you know, George Lucas has simply just remained in control. Um, from my own point of view, I have sort of mixed feelings generally about the content they've created. Some of it I really enjoyed. Rogue One I loved. Um, episode 7 mm. I thought was really good, but was a bit of a retread, but I, I thought they, they sort of captured the spirit. Last Jedi I think is a, a bit flawed, but is maybe the most interesting thing certainly the most interesting at the three sequels and i think you can tell that they gave someone i.e ryan johnson the ability to write and direct something which was his interpretation of star wars which maybe didn't necessarily fit into how everyone else saw star wars star wars and didn't necessarily fit into how everyone saw the luke skywalker character for instance um but i thought it was at least someone trying to do something in the vein of george lucas where it was I'm going to, you know, tell stories with characters rather than I'm going to bring forward an intellectual property and deliver a satisfying conclusion type of thing, which I think we've seen much more with episode seven and nine, which episode nine, especially, which felt like they were trying to land the plane as it were, and try and make sure that they mm. could, you know, get the profits in and that they would get a relatively crowd pleasing experience for everyone. And I think Ryan Johnson was much more you know he was much more a creative thinker in that regard as far as just trying to build something which was his own and tap into what he considered the essence of star wars and so you had that with the little character the little the young boy with the broom at the end of the ep at the end yes. of the film and i think that is exactly the type of thing that you would get from someone who has their own ideas about star wars rather than an intellectual property being delivered by executives. And I hope we get more of that where we we get people putting their own stamps on it. I understand there has to be a, a general sort of larger um, story and larger um, 
a timeline for these things. So, you know, it, it, if you're going to do a, a spin-off of a certain character, you, you know, the, it dictates you can't kill him off in, in the existing film, as it were. But it would be nice to see people take some more chances with things, even if they didn't always work out. And, you know, I have my own issues with some of the things in The Last Jedi, but I did think it was someone's genuine attempt at making an interesting film mm-hmm. rather than trying to land a plane, um, which is, yeah, part of my problem with uh, Episode Nine. Um, Mandalorian I, I've I've loved and has been a, a real pleasure to be honest uh, I wasn't fully expecting when first landed I was unsure exactly what we were going to get but it quickly became clear that this was again um, someone's idea of what they wanted the a Star Wars series to be and um, I think it's it's been two great seasons and I look forward to more and I'll no doubt watch some of the other spin-offs that they have in the near future. So mm. I don't have the same connection to Star Wars as you do, Vaughn, but I've enjoyed elements of the Disney run probably a lot more than I thought I would um, considering you do worry about what Disney would bring to it, but you know, they've, right. they've, they've proven with the Marvel films, they know how to put together um connected stories that was the again the one disappointment one of the bigger disappointment disappointments i had with the sequels was how much they brought it back to the sort of skywalker saga and how much it was um you know you're you're a palpatine you're a you know i i i like the idea of ray being kind of no one i i i like that idea that and was basically set in place and I think confirmed in The Last Jedi that like your parents were nobodies, you know. And I would have loved that to have been the case rather than I, I didn't feel the need to bring it back and have, you know, <laughs> Palpatine fucks as the underlying tone of the <laughs> of, of the of the of the film. So um yeah, I'm. I'm. What's Palpatine fucks? I mean, it was never in dispute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, was, he was Nixon, Dick Cheney, and Mitch McConnell. Of course, he fucks. Fucks. <laughs> <laughs> what one? I, I do have to say that I have a lot of faith if Dave Filoni is attached to things because Dave Filoni was the showrunner for um, Clone Wars, as I've already said, and uh, Rebels, and he is doing Bad Batch. He is. Like, like I trust him with everything Star Wars. So as mm. long as Disney keeps employing Dave Filoni, he is absolutely brilliant. He absolutely loves Star Wars and he would not do anything to harm it. Like I I have a, a huge just crush on J- Dave Filoni and anything he does, I think is absolute perfection. Um, and has he managed to bring politics and philosophy, you think successfully into the, into the world so far? That he's honestly been- so much more than the films did. If like Clone Wars is just such an intricate and complex, but perfectly balanced look at what a war actually is. Like I said earlier, it's, Mm -hmm. it's like the visceral on the ground. How do we build a rebellion? How do we even train random citizens to defend themselves or why they should defend themselves? What kind of politics should we be teaching citizens of how to be citizens yeah. And how to recognize like the government they want, how to recognize corruption. It's just it's this brilliantly engaging series all the way through um, from 08 to 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 2020 yeah. of dealing with with the the visceral 
sides of politics and the visceral sides of war together in one. He, Dave Filoni's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I would highly recommend any of his work. Um, so as long as he's still employed, I, I trust that Disney will probably be mm-hmm. doing something right. And one of the reasons I enjoyed Rogue One so much was, as I keep harking back to, it was mm-hmm. this idea of, you know, nobody's kind of coming together for a com- common cause. And I, I like that within the Star Wars universe, the, the this idea of there is, you don't need to be from nobility to change the outcome of history. Um, yeah. And um, I, 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 I like the fairly unimportant in the grander scheme things, people coming together to defeat the empire which to me has a, a greater connection to the, the original trilogy but that's just my own thoughts if if people haven't watched rebels i would highly recommend it um a lot of people it's not their favorite show yeah. um and they don't recommend it but i would if you like the the visceral on the ground action of a war and mm-hmm. a rebellion the uh, rebels follows this one rebel cell of like a ragtag group of like five or six people um just fighting the the empire on their day-to-day and trying to get by and trying to help people who are being oppressed and it's visceral it's so good Mm. um just to show that other side of of what's actually going on people like star wars especially with the episodes it's easy to forget that things are happening to people outside of like the Skywalker relationship with the emperor and everything. But I think the prequels really start it. And then clone wars and rebels really bring it home that a war is not just between the generals. A war is trade blockades and starvation and famine and um, blocking medical supplies. On the other side of that, you have the last Jedi, which talked about, the, the war profiteering of, yes, the, of yeah. the people who were actually making the weapons for both sides and they didn't really care who won because war was good for business so yeah yeah the banking clan through all of star wars they really are the winners just constantly mm. um and clone wars and rebels really bring that out i think I could right. talk we, about this for days. We should probably... <laughs> we, so we, we are past the two-hour mark now. The one thing, unless there was anything specific you guys wanted to talk about, the one thing I was going to do was just give Vaughn two or three minutes to give any hot takes or any um, anything she just wants to get out there and establish as official fact, because as we did with the Christmas films, where Vaughn got to establish what was not a Christmas film and what was, or mm-hmm. what was good and what was bad... I thought whether we like it or lump it, Vaughn can now establish as um, as official history um, hot takes. So Vaughn, the floor is yours if you have any. Oh my God, I'm so happy right now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, where do I start? Okay. Um, my number one hot take that I will constantly yell at people all the time online is that uh, one, the prequels are fucking good. They're good films. I enjoy them. They're fantastic. Screw you, Simon. Um, no, 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 they're so good. Boo. They're so good. They're so good. And people great, are always great, like, good. Ooh, Hayden Christensen can't act. Guess what? It's his fucking character. He acts it really well. Okay. Like, Anakin is supposed to be a damaged teenager. He's growing up in this monkhood of 
them telling him like like one you don't have a dad you came out of nothing and we're taking you away from your mom and leaving her to be a slave and sorry we can't do anything about her even though we're jedi and we could totally like just destroy Watto, whatever like uh um but i was gonna say after you have successfully defend your phd maybe you can successfully defend george lucas's prequel scripts i think you oh i'm doing it right now <laughs> i'm doing it right now Simon. um like they they take this small child from slavery to a religious order where they're like remember that mom who was the only person that you had emotional contact with for the first nine years of your life um yeah you're not allowed to love people anymore so forget about her and then as he's a teenager and he starts having feelings for the first woman that he's ever fucking seen for padme he he becomes obsessed with it because he feels like he shouldn't be feeling the love that he does have for her and he's taken away from his mom and immediately meets padme she she changed like of course he thinks that he loves her. He was nine years old and ripped away from his mom. And the only other female person in his life was Padme. Like, it makes sense that he became obsessed with her. And he was told that those feelings are wrong and that love in any capacity is wrong. So, of course, it, it kind of manipulates him and, and hurts him and makes him extreme in his emotions for her in the same way their rejection of any other type of politics or even questioning the Jedi Order makes him extreme in his politics and forces him to the dark side. And another hot take about Anakin, I will defend Anakin till my dying day. He, people are like, oh, he can't flirt. He's talking about sand. Fuck that. He isn't flirting in that scene in the scene before he is flirting with her when they're sitting in front of the fire and he's rattling off some beautiful poetic lines but nobody ever sees that as flirting they're like sand i hate it it gets everywhere like that's a genuine trauma response he's trying to open up to padme and tell her that he has traumatic experiences with sand and it's it's a very beautiful engaging scene of anakin feeling something and allowing himself to feel something for her after he's been told and beaten down for years that that exact thing that feels so right and beautiful and and good to open up to her that that is wrong and that he shouldn't do it that is him opening up from a traumatic experience of being a literally enslaved child opening up to someone he's not allowed to love so get wrecked they're beautiful Anakin is not a bad character and Hayden Christensen is not a bad actor. Maybe some of the dialogue could be a bit better, but not that line because that is a genuine trauma response. And I think it's beautiful that that is included in these films, that he's working through trauma in a way that he's trying to allow himself to love another person, which is an extremely hard thing to do in itself, while also in this oppressive regime that tells him everything he does is wrong. Everything that feels good is wrong. No wonder he turned into a fucking Sith because the goddamn liberals wouldn't give him any an inch to feel anything. Ah, I love the prequels. I think they're really good. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add, Vaughn? There's probably a long list. 
There's a lot, but I won't. That's my most important one. It's Anakin is having a trauma response. If anyone wants to fight me on the prequels, like at me, at me on Twitter, I will argue with you. <laughs> Goddamn. At Jeevon Joy, fucking get at me. I love the prequels so much. <sighs> I feel really good now. I feel good that I got that off my chest. Thank you for letting me do that, Simon. You're very welcome. Toby, yeah, so is there anyone you'd like to shout out? Um, I, th I think uh, OG Count Dooku. I mean, I, still... <laughs> I think um, I I that attack um was it Attack of the Clones. Mm -hmm. I I wasn't really a big fan of that movie, but when he came in, I mean, it, he changed everything for me. And, uh... <laughs> and to be honest, I I like I think. You know, as a kid, a lot of this like Senate stuff was kind of was kind of boring. It's not what I expected to to see. I mean, it's like it's, you know, seeing it with new eyes is is something. But I don't. Know, I I still think Phantom Menace is kind of a dry. It's a dry movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's some good action in it, and, and Attack of the Clones is 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 similar in some ways, but uh, you can't beat. The, the the characters that come out of Attack of the Clones, the the, the Clone mm -hmm. Wars TV show, General Grievous, and then, and then you know um, that final movie. Well, that final movie, which I think is actually my, like I think it's a nudge underneath Return of the King. I think it's a good, really good movie. I think it's misjudged because of the first two movies. Revenge. And um and yeah and I and I do think um that despite everything George Lucas as we've touched on this this podcast did really try to try to show you what it's like for an empire or and a republic uh, to fall and mm -hmm. for its institutions to become so unstuck so unusable that tyranny emerges and, and I think he did that convincingly um, yeah I don't know I mean because one of the things about the audience for those movies is that the the sort of the late boomers gen Xers who who were kids when they watched the, those movies they hated the prequels and then the people who liked the prequels were millennials and it's like the, those original people never went back to try to reevaluate those movies at all some millennials have because they their original feelings were very very positive and you know they've had to they've tried to find you know things within them that, that work that, that speaks to them performances that people have ridiculed that they thought were you know that they thought were misjudged. I still think like Hayden Christensen's performance. There's something you know. I mean, you could say that he's he's internally he's uncomfortable. He's conflicted. I think, and I think um, in uh, Revenge of the Sith that you know. Obi-Wan comes out of the, the ship and and Hayden Christensen's trying to strangle Padme and just I don't know, this it doesn't feel convincing for me. There's a there's a I don't know, there's just something about that performance that doesn't really I don't think he's doing enough. And that, that which is my this has always been my um, perspective. I don't think he's, I just don't think he's doing enough. I know, I know he's supposed to seem conflicted and vulnerable 
and um, you know, someone who could be changed and someone who could, and I think that all that is convincing. I just don't think he's doing enough to make it seem like he's like the, the, the actor is confident in handling the role. I, that, that's always mm. been my, my perspective on it, you know, but yeah, different people got different things. You know, like, like one of my best friends from, from school was absolutely obsessed with, with Anakin and thought it was, it, it was a tremendous performance. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. I agree with your friend. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, on, on that, we should probably leave it. It's been a really fun episode. Vaughn, I hope you've got as much out of this as you, you thought you were going to. Oh my God, I'm so happy right now. I am just so, just so satisfied right now. Thank you for doing this, for indulging <laughs> me to do this episode. I've been begging for this. <laughs> I'm just so happy that we did this. So thank you guys. Thank you're, you both. You're very welcome. It was really interesting. I'm sure there's always a possibility in the future that we come and revisit maybe something more specific around star wars again uh, but this has been a really great um overview and dive into a variety of things around um star wars and i will now just continue to think of the jedi as liberals which is they're just liberals just 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 new hillary... democrat liberals just hillary clinton with a glowing stick okay um i'll never look at mace window again <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> clearly hillary can you know. <laughs> right okay well um we should probably leave it there then uh toby vaughn uh thanks so much vaughn thank you for coming in so prepared for this and uh giving <laughs> such detail um you probably could have done that all in your sleep to be honest but uh, thank Honestly, you. Honestly, yeah, probably. But I'm happy <laughs> I was awake for it. <laughs> right. From Toby, Vaughn, um, and myself, Simon, thank you very much for listening. And we'll have an ep- another episode for you in the near future. Goodbye. Goodbye.